Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pairing Episode 3, a tribute to Ursula K. Le Guin. Le Guin is one of my favorite authors who sadly passed away a few weeks ago, and so I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about her and honor her. In this episode, we take a little bit of a break from the quote-unquote hardcore wine education and more just have a conversation about an author, her works, and her legacy. We do talk about wine to a certain extent, but mostly about just one winemaker, whose name is Angela Osborne. We were drinking one of her wines called Land of Saints, and I didn't even realize until afterwards just how appropriate a pairing it was. Because, on the back of the wine label, there is a Cornish proverb which reads, What's said of old is said in truth. We talk a lot about truth and art and how it relates to Ursula Le Guin's books and life in this episode. Yeah, we wax a little philosophical. But also, it was kind of because there was a dragon on the front of the label, and uh, we also talk a lot about dragons. I'm not going to go into too much more before diving in, but I just wanted to say a few more things about Le Guin that we didn't get into in the episode itself. First of all, I know what you're thinking. Two out of the first three episodes are about sci-fi and fantasy authors? I thought you said you'd dive into different genres. Yeah, yeah, that's true, and I'm definitely a huge nerd and have a soft spot for these books, but to me the works of Tolkien and the works of Le Guin are so vastly different both in tone and subject matter that I don't even think of them as belonging to the same genre. As I say in the episode, Le Guin has a deeply curious, thoughtful, and sophisticated way of looking at the world. She is a fantasy author for those who don't particularly care for fantasy, so if you're not familiar with her work, I really do recommend seeking it out. She won dozens of awards in her lifetime, and even though we mostly talk about two of her major series, she also wrote short stories, poetry, and standalone novels. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, as that's one of the best ways to get more people to listen in. Without further ado, here is episode three, a tribute to Ursula K. Le Guin. So we're here, we're very excited, but it's a little bit under sad circumstances because um, a couple of weeks ago, wonderful famed science fiction and fantasy author Ursula K. Le Guin passed away. And, you know, she was 88 years old and she lived a very full life by all accounts. And so it's not, it's not a tragedy, but it's always sad when, when these things happen. But when, when I heard the news, my first instinct was, well, my first instinct was, oh, that's sad. My second instinct was, well, now seems like a great time to pay homage to the queen of science fiction and fantasy by recording an episode and drinking wine and toasting to her. Yas queen. Yas queen. And so we are drinking tonight... Just to start off, um, this is kind of fun because, you know, Ursula Le Guin was an American author and in the world of science fiction and fantasy, at least in in the time when she started, you know, there weren't a ton of American science fiction. Well, actually, I don't know. I'm making that up. But there certainly... Yeah, when did she start? In the, like the, the 70s? 60s, the 60s, yeah. 67, oh, yeah, because there was Zelazny and... There were, there were a few, there yeah, were a few there, weirdos. Sure, sure. There were, there were a few. Around. There were a few. 
But in any case, I'm, I'm making a stretch here. But not uh, brilliant artists like her. Sure, yeah. Who, who really changed the genre. Totally changed the genre. And actually, this seems like a good time to bring up a quote that I found. Um, Harold Bloom, who is a book critic, he said of Ursula Le Guin that she was a superbly imaginative creator and major stylist who has raised fantasy into high literature for our time. I would say that's a pretty accurate description of what she did. She really changed science fiction and fantasy, not just from those genres, but really into wonderful, highly esteemed literature. I agree. She was an amazing, amazing person. I've been doing a little bit of research on her, and I'm really excited to talk about it. But So what we're drinking tonight um, happens to be one of my favorite winemakers, who also happens to be a woman just totally coincidentally she her name is Angela Osborne and she makes she makes a wine called a tribute to grace um, she she's from New Zealand but she makes wine in Santa Barbara in California this is not one of the tribute to grace wines the tribute to grace wines are made from exclusively the Grenache grape so she's doing an unusual thing in California, especially, which is making wine from one grape, and especially um, that being the Grenache grape. She's she's amazing. She's awesome. I've met her before. Her wines are astounding. They're beautiful. They're elegant. They have beautiful balance to them. Not what you'd imagine from coming out of California. What we're drinking tonight is one of her other labels, one of her other projects that she collaborates on, and it's called Land of Saints. Pretty sweet. It's got a dragon on it. And yeah. It's, night. I, 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 okay, I'm not going to totally pretend that I didn't pick it because it's got a dragon on it, but well, <laughs> we're all, talking about fantasy That's still. not an illegitimate reason. Absolutely. Um, but so this is a blend of Grenache and Syrah, and it definitely has, in tasting it a little bit, more more influence from the Syrah. It's got kind of a gaminess to it. It's a little more full-bodied than most of her Grenache-based wines are. You get just a hint of that kind of black olive note to it, which Ooh, Syrah, yeah. which Syrah has characteristically. A little salt almost. Yeah, it's and it's and it's grippy. It's a little gritty, but it's still got that nice smooth red fruit on the front palate from the Grenache. Yeah. I I love her wines, and this one is pretty affordable. Um, it's a little less than twenty dollars on our shelf, and it's it's really really terrific, and I love supporting her. So we'll talk a little bit more more about her in this episode and in others. But I wanted to take a little bit of a different direction and really use this as a as a chance to honor Miss Le Guin and talk about her not not any specific work we'll talk about a few of her works but talk about her life and her influence and you know maybe along the way we'll talk about what wine we'd like to pair with different works of hers and all that but i i just wanted to to get a chance to talk about her all right let's do it let's do it so like i said Ursula Le Guin, she died a couple weeks ago, and there was an obituary in the New York Times, and so I'm going to quote from that a little bit just to give you a sense because it gives – it's a really nice article. I recommend reading it, um, and it gives a little – a very nice sense of her life. But just to start off, I wanted to say that if you think you don't like science fiction or fantasy, read Ursula Le Guin. Her writing, both in the style of prose and the subject matter that she attacks, is way more sophisticated than the majority of other works in modern sci-fi and fantasy, I would argue at least. 
And even though they take place in fantastical worlds and other planets, her work feels firmly rooted in this reality as she deals with various political, social, anthropological, cultural, spiritual, environmental, racial, and sexual identity issues in a much more complex and pertinent way than many, if not all, other fantasy and sci-fi authors. I was just listening to her foreword to The Left Hand of Darkness, which is arguably her most famous work, apart from The Wizard of Earthsea and The Earthsea Is that even works. famous? I know The Earthsea, like, cycle is kind of famous, but is the first one really? I mean, as part of, as part of the, the, the cycle, I would say. But one of the things she talks about in the foreword to The Left Hand of Darkness is she talks about truth and how novelists lie, but and yet they tell the truth at the same time. And she says, truth is a matter of imagination. She says that both in the foreword, and I think that's also something she says in the book. I think that's a quote from the book. Um, and she also says something along the lines of, don't believe a word I say. I'm telling the truth. It was really fun. I was listening to it, uh, listening to the audible book of The Left Hand of Darkness, and I and she reads the foreword, and, and so it, it, it was just nice to listen to. All the best artists are liars and thieves, exactly. I think. Well, yeah. You got your, you know, your Bob Dylan, your Shakespeare. You can't tell the truth without using pretty lies. When the moon was at its full. Well, exactly, and there, well, there's a way of conveying the truth in a poetic way, right. and I think that the truly great writers and artists of our time have a way of showing the truth without telling the truth. Well, and maybe what's cool about it is that it's not the truth, and when you have poetry sure. and prose and whatever art, you give people access to a truth, right? Yeah. And it it might not be, you know, specifically each person's truth, but you do give people the opportunity to be like, oh, okay, maybe that's true, you know, in a way that they might not be if you were just yelling at them on Facebook or... Totally. Just to give you a little background on Ursula Le Guin, if you don't know much about her, she was born in California, and then she lived in Portland, Oregon for most of her life. And so I'm now going to quote from said obituary in the New York Times by Gerald Jonas. He writes, Miss Le Guin embraced the standard themes of her chosen genres, sorcery and dragons, like the wine we're drinking, yep. spaceships and planetary conflict. Yes. But even when her protagonists are male, they avoid the macho posturing of so many science fiction and fantasy heroes. The conflicts they face are typically rooted in a clash of cultures and resolved more by conciliation and self-sacrifice than by swordplay or space battles. End quote. Absolutely and true. It is absolutely true. And in, in that sense, you know, it, because a lot of people describe her as feminist, which I think she is, but there's not like an emphasis in her work on like the power of the female over... The male or any or not over but with you know it the, no, it's more like the cultures just function in a slightly different way exactly like she just went ahead and was like all right we don't need rebellious female characters we we just want cultures that have accommodated a non-patriarchal perspective totally like the earth sea trilogy or and the other earth sea books are they're based in this world which is kind of loosely based off of 
Indonesia or the Philippines, it seems like, because it's it's an arch- it's an archipelago. Archipelago, exactly, and um and so, but the the things that are really interesting that she deals with in her work, the most striking choice that she ever made, I guess, was in the Heinish cycle, which is what the Left Hand of Darkness and the Dispossessed belong to. She deals a lot with gender identity, and so the planet that our hero is an envoy to in the left hand of darkness. So this is straight sci-fi. This is straight not sci-fi. Dragons and wizards. No, 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 no dragons and wizards. Just you know, taking place on a different planet in which the people who populate that planet are entirely androgynous. Literally, they 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 possess qualities of both our sexes as we see it. And I just thought that's so cool. And like I read that when I was read the book when I was like fourteen or fifteen or something like that, and just kind of like blew my mind. The fact that she was thinking about these things, and 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 then another thing that she says often is that these books that she wrote, they're they're a thought experiment. They're not. She's not extrapolating. She's not predicting. She's not doing. You know, she's she's not doing that. She's she's saying, okay, so let's take away gender. And then what's left, right? which I think is really cool and in a way ahead of her time, especially in the genre she was working in. Because I think The Left Hand of Darkness was published in like 1971 or something. Yeah, she was writing in a, at a really interesting time. She was. So anyway, one of the things that I learned in the process of doing a little bit of research on her, which I didn't know beforehand, but found out and makes a lot of sense, is that she was very interested in Lao Tzu and Taoism or Taoism. I don't know as we've just discussed, I don't know the proper pronunciation. I've heard Taoism most of my life, but I've seen Taoism, and I, I, I don't want to offend anybody. Please tell me what is the proper pronunciation, listeners, dear listeners, if any of you speak Chinese, um, please please let me know. But uh, but that that is very interesting to me as well. She calls herself atheist, but she she's very interested in balance in all of her works, which brings me to... The Wines of Angela Osborne, which are, as I said before, I think just beautifully, beautifully balanced. And what she does with Grenache, and in this case Syrah, really making a very smooth but textured, leveled wine, I think is, I love her wines. I'm a huge fan of her. Grenache is a grape that is in general a little bit lighter and a little bit fruitier, not very much tannin to it. It can have varying levels of acidity. It can be quite boring if it's not made well, but she was so committed to working with the Grenache grape that she traveled all over the world. Again, she's from New Zealand, and she found various different places in the world that she wanted to work, and she ended up settling down in Santa Barbara in California. The spice is so good. The too. spice is amazing. And that's the Syrah. And mm. so, and you know me, I'm, I'm, Syrah is tough for me. I, I either love it or I hate it again, because kind of because of that black olive meaty thing, I have a hard time with it sometimes because I just don't like that flavor very much. Yeah. But when it's so well balanced like this, then it's, it's just, it's gorgeous. And Oh man, I love I love her wines. This one, this one, like I said, has a little bit more deeper, darker uh, texture to it, a touch more tannin. Her grenaches are very silky, very smooth. They can be like almost. She does make a rosé, but some of her red wine can be very, very light, almost, almost like a rosé, varying from that to. And she makes like twenty different 
kinds of Grenache, hmm. you know, or, or 20 different wines from different very specific sites in Santa Barbara from Grenache. She's so cool. I, I, I think she's great. I got to meet her a few, maybe close to a year ago. She's just very humble, very sweet, and just making wonderful, wonderful wine. So anyway, I feel like this is an appropriate wine to be drinking while by an awesome, innovative winemaker who happens to be a woman as well. So anyway, so so we talked a little bit about The Left Hand of Darkness, but before she wrote The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed, The Dispossessed, interestingly enough, has a little bit more to do with politics and anarchism. Yeah, because she got really, like, socialist anarchist. She did for a little while. she went on, right? Or was it in the middle or early? I don't know. Well, she, as far as I can tell, and I don't fully know, she, she had an interest in it. But was also critical of it, at least in in the dispossessed, at least in the book. She she is still critical of any sort of structured system like that, or non-structured, as the case may be, depending on how you're looking at it. But she definitely, being in her prime in the '60s and '70s, that was when she was writing most of her most famous works. Uh, she was certainly in- influenced by the anarchist movements and what what was going on. And she was very critical of definitely the United States and capitalism in general. I capitalism think, right? in general. Yes. Like that's she's, she's been memefied now yes. that she died. Poor, but her poor thing. Yeah. But uh. she, but, but she was again talking about Lao Tzu and her interest in kind of Eastern philosophies. She was more interested in balance than in didacticism which I think is really cool. Apparently that's something that changed a little bit in her work. She she slowly got Explain it. to me what that means because I don't know. Didacticism? It it yeah. it, it means basically that she didn't want to tell you what to think. She wanted oh, you okay. She didn't want to be pedantic. See, I know words too. Yes. Yes. She didn't want to be <laughs> pedantic and she didn't want to be didactic. She didn't want to she didn't want to say this is what I believe and is right and is good and you should believe it. She wanted right. to present a tension between opposing forces and kind of let you see what happens. So not Terry Goodkind. Hoyo. On the other hand, if one was to call everything by its right name, mm. which Ursula K. Le Guin is a big fan of, that's the Earthsea trilogy, mm-hmm. most of magic comes from calling things their actual names. And she has like this... The power of language. Yeah, so she has like this old language, whether it's, you know, if you want to analogize it to High Elven or to Latin or to something, everything has this original, immutable, platonic name. And if you call it that, then you have power over it. So the whole Earthsea trilogy deals with that in one way or another. First of all, it's really cool. It's all people of color. Um, it's on an archipelago instead of, you know, a bunch of continents. There's no, like, oh, this empire's taking over that. I mean, like, there's a couple of, like, oh, there's battles, but, like, they're all in the background. Like, nobody actually cares because the important things are, are commerce. Mm-hmm. And knowledge. <clears throat> the main character is named Sparrowhawk, or Gen is his real name, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if you call him Gen, then which is interesting because the protagonist of the Left Hand of Darkness, his name is Genli. Oh, hey now, Genli I. Yes. Yeah. 
But the first Wizard of Mercy is all about, like, he, because he's a prideful young man trying to impress people, releases this horrifying demon by doing a spell he's not supposed to do. And it chases him for, like, 20 years to the ends of the earth. And he finally, if you haven't read it, I, I weep for you. Recommend. Recommend reading it. Read it. But anyway, yeah. the whole thing is about, like, call, he can't find out the thing's name. Mm-hmm. And in order to defeat it, he has to find out its name. Mm-hmm. I will not ruin it for you. The whole magic system that she has, like, I think if you're going to write a fantasy book, at least nowadays especially, and even back then, you had to have some kind of idea. Like, you, you, you couldn't, it couldn't just be, like, a system. You had to have a theory of why magic existed and what it was and what it accomplished, and and you also had to have, like, a metaphorical truth behind it, I think. At least that's what I think about Mm -hmm. it. In The the Wizard of Mercy, it's about cutting through dishonesty. Yeah. The idea that truth doesn't have that much power until you cut right through someone's lies and tell the truth at them or tell the truth about them or to them. Part of what I was saying earlier about how she really elevated fantasy and sci-fi into high literature because fantasy and sci-fi they kind of get a bad rap in the in the like intellectual community because they're not considered to be written as in a sophisticated way but what she she kind of brings this element of intellectual thought to to these books that many others including like Tolkien and some of the really, really great fantasy authors don't bring quite that level of depth of thought, at least not as readily accessibly. You kind of, there's there's a lot more show in a lot of fantasy and sci-fi and a little less substance. And I, and with Le Guin, that is not the case at all. And I'm saying this as a diehard you know, Tolkien nut and sci-fi fantasy fan, but... She's sort of... It's almost like William Goldman, like in Princess Bride. Like, well, she's also... looking at a world. She she takes for granted that the world exists, and mm-hmm. then she starts to editorialize about it. Sure. You know, where she's like, well, people from this island always thought the people from that island were dopes, and this and the other thing, and, you know, like... Sure. She... There's, a, there's an anthropological perspective to what yeah. she writes about, which is funny because both of her parents were anthropologists. And, oh, hi. Oh, hi. Who are actually interested in Native American culture, particularly in California, um, which just interesting. I don't know how much that influenced her and her work. I know that she is interested in Native cultures. Um, and, and again, just bringing it back to the idea that she rejected that fantasy had to be this, you know, faux medieval Europe world which most most fantasy is in most still. fantasy yeah still still to today like even game, game of, of thrones, thrones. Yeah. yeah it's even though there are you know people of color and slightly different cultures in the song and ice and fire series it's so predominantly right. that medieval white european culture yeah. and that is just not something that she ever wanted to deal with and she said you know i don't I don't, I don't see why I have to do that, and that's not right. And I, I think that's so cool that, I mean, well, I mean, so cool. I mean, of course. <laughs> like, why yeah. why does it have to be based off of this, you know, this one culture that we were thinking of? Well, it's really interesting when, like, 
Uh, and shout out to the Spirits Gals again. Mm-hmm. But, As always. You know, listening to like the Maui episode that they did mm-hmm. and some of the amazing, um, you know, all around the world myths. And it's kind of like. Yeah, oh, mythology it's... doesn't just belong to like Britain. And... Yeah. Well, and also, <laughs> like, why is it mythology when it's, you know, one culture, but it's, you know, it can be a fantasy epic? Like, why, why can't we have a Polynesian epic? I, I want that, you know. I want I want I want fantasy that's earnest that draws on different cultures. And I think Ursula right. K. Le Guin actually did that, not necessarily through cultural appropriation, but because she just was like, Well, I'm gonna reject the norm. Yeah. And so I'm gonna kinda cobble together what I can. Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, listeners, I'm sorry, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure, you know, cultural appropriation was rampant, even in her work. But she Absolutely. she at I'm least sure. tried to do something different. She did. And she tried to include representation of different people. Yeah, again, in the and Wizard of Earthsea, those are all people of color. Again, it's... Again, it's black, yeah. basically. Yeah. Just This just made me think. This just reminded me of something that I learned that I didn't know. Apparently, Hayao Miyazaki, one of our favorite filmmakers, wanted to make an adaptation of the Earthsea books. Hmm. And at the time, Le Guin was not familiar with him and anime. And so she said no, which... Just breaks my heart because oh my god, if Hayao Miyazaki had made an Earthsea movie, it would have been. However, there is an Earthsea miniseries well, there... and an animated one. There are both. Right, and the animated one I believe was actually made by his son. Was made oh. by Miyazaki's son. Yes, which I found out, cool. and um, and I learned also that Le Guin wished in retrospect that she had worked with Miyazaki because. Because he's maybe one of the best filmmakers of all time. Yeah, because he's absolutely amazing. And I think there's – I see a lot of philosophical and aesthetic parallels between Miyazaki's work and Le Guin's work. Well, well, they're both very suspicious of authority. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I always thought one of the coolest things about Miyazaki was that – and, I mean, he deserves his own episode, but – Oh, he will get his own. He will get many. He trusts the young. He does. And that's so, like, that's so uncommon, especially now, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. we're all so divided. Class, gender, race, and age. Like, oh, you kids, and, like, the baby boomers ruined everything. No, it's the millennials and the avocado toast. Well, but, (laughs) like, Hayao Miyazaki's whole thing was, like, no, you have to trust younger people. Yeah. Not because they're better, but because... They might not have the capacity to lie like that yet. Yeah. And so whether it's uh, Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke or, you know, Castle in the Sky, it's all about trusting young people because there's a certain purity. You can actually not think little of your fellow man. Right. Or the young or the old or whoever. Yeah. And learn from them. Absolutely. And I think Le Guin is also way about that because the the character that I always remember, aside from Ken Sparrowhawk, whoever, is um I can barely remember his name, but he's the he's the wizard that Gen first apprentices with, and mm-hmm. he like his name is like it's not Qui Gon Jinn. That's a different. <laughs> that's <clears throat> a different. That's a different one. <laughs> yeah, but he he barely ever talks. He almost he never does magic. He just kind of like 
is very silent and sweet and totally tolerant. Like, he's not even wrathful when Gen does whack-ass shit and breaks his rules and stuff. He's just like, okay, well, I don't think you're really cool with learning my way, so I'm going to send you to the Wizard Academy. But there's no, like, thrashing. There's no, And then he just, like, shows up and does his thing. And he's silent. He's humble. He's There's nothing heroic about him except what he actually does. Right. Well, the, and that comes back to the idea that Le Guin's heroism is not, like, going out and fighting with a sword. It is good action. Yeah. And right action. Right action. And so just to bring it back, just since this is a podcast about wine, let's maybe talk a little bit about maybe what we would pair with the Heinish cycle, which is, again, the the sci-fi series. That's all you. Yes. And um, so that's The Left Hand of Darkness. But tell me about it. The Dispossessed and The Telling, I believe, is the other main book in that cycle. And then there's the Earthsea Trilogy, which she published in the late 60s, and then 25, 30 years later published a few other books in the same world, Um, Tehanu and I think the other wind or something. Yeah, because yeah. eventually they and called so, it the Earthsea Cycle. But... Yeah, or the Earthsea Series or something like that. Yeah. And because because she did revisit it and I remember reading, I now want to reread all of her books because I read almost all of them but when I was like 14, 15 years old and I don't remember them in a lot of detail. I remember them having immense impact on me but I don't remember a lot of the details and so I want to go back and reread everything. I've been listening to The Left Hand of Darkness on audio, on Audible, and you've been listening to the Earthsea series. And... I mean, I listened to it in one night. I, li- oh, yeah. I could not sleep, and I listened to the entire... I mean, it's an incredibly short book. It is a young yep. adult fiction book. It is. That's the other thing. It's 200 pages long. The other thing that is also was... mentioned in her obituary, so the Earthsea series is a young adult series, but uh, she doesn't talk down no. in it at all. It treats the reader with respect. Yeah. No matter how old the reader is. Again, like very much parallel to Miyazaki. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about um, the Earthsea series and maybe what we'd drink with that. So, okay, thinking about this, again, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sparrowhawk, whatever we want to call him. Yep. He's from this tiny island. It's one of those islands that like. It doesn't even really produce anything. Right. Like, they're, they fish, but, like, they're not even the big fishing island. Right. You know, it's just, like, a total backwater in a world where all land masses are islands. And they're one of the shittiest islands. And he kind of comes to prominence by accidentally conjuring a fog spell when a bunch of... And I think they are actually described as white. They're basically white invaders. Mm-hmm. They're called like the Targons or something. Again, mm-hmm. correct me, readers. I'm sorry. But um, they come to invade the island and they're stealing sheep and stuff. And, and he basically cooks up this fog and they all get lost. And then the men of the island are able to come back and chase them and kill most of them mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But then when the wizard whose name I can't remember. And I can't find. <laughs> comes to get him. He lives with him for months and months, and he's so eager to learn, and the wizard is not teaching him anything, because the wizard is like, go out and collect some... Mer-. It's very Karate Kid. He's very like, wax on, <laughs> wax off. 
you know, show me sand the floor, show me paint the fence. It, it's, it's very much that kind of thing. And Gen's like, ah, oh, this is bullshit. I want to, like, you know, make fireballs and stuff. And the wizard is, he's not even mad, which, I, again, I think is really cool. He's like, look, you, you clearly want to learn a different way. So I'm going to send you the Wizard Academy on an island called Roke. And he sends him there. And then all sorts of shit happens. But basically, like, Gen being this weird upstart, mm-hmm. I'm thinking what we want is, like, a wine that's good to drink younger. And a yeah. wine that's kind of, like, sharp. Mm-hmm. Because Gen is very prideful. Like, he's very good. He's very competent. He's ultimately has a great heart and does a lot of nice things. But he's he just, like, he's got those sharp edges. You know what I mean? Yeah. So first thing that comes to mind is, so because we're in this archipelago, the other the other place in the world that comes to mind is Greece. Yeah. And, and so Greek wine, I'm thinking, is a, a cool way to go for for the Earthsea trilogy and Rock for Gen. Totally. And and so I've talked a little bit about, or you might not have heard me talk about it yet, but you will, uh, about the grape Assyrtiko, which comes from the island of Santorini in Greece, which is one of my favorite grapes in the world. And it's crisp, it's sharp, but it has very interesting texture to it as well. And it's and it's not very well known and it's it's just it's it's fantastic. And then there's another grape that I love called this is one of my favorites, Muscofilero. And Muscofilero is a little bit softer. It's still bright and dry, but it doesn't have quite the acidity that a Sirico has. And then is it white? Yeah, yeah, it's white, and but it has a little bit more kind of like stone fruit to it. I get a lot of peach and pear notes to Moscofilero, um, with a little bit of crispness, a little bit of like, I'm thinking of one of my favorites, lemon so it's sweet, zest. but it still has a little bit of that acid in well, there. Well, it's not sweet, but it's but it's got some of those nice fruit tones to it. But it's a little bit a little bit softer, a little a little less acidity than than a Sirico. Okay. What would you call like stone fruit in terms of taste? Stone fruit. Uh, so stone fruit literally means uh, fruit yeah, that's got, got a pit. Yeah. So, but it's it's a ripeness. I would say it's a ripeness of fruit. So like juicy. Yeah. Like, yeah what, sure. what What's a good adjective for like the peach taste? I would say yeah, juicy is a good good word and kind of full and rich flavors to it, intensity of flavor, but but that sort of flavor as opposed to a citrus kind of flavor or a flowery kind of flavor or you know there's there's myriad different descriptors for wines and but you can get peach notes you can get pear notes in a very very dry wine and that's what i want to clarify doesn't mean it tastes like peach juice right 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 so there's that and then last but not least there's this grape called retsina which is so high in acid that a lot of people really don't like it. Like it it's is like a whiskey so serious. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like a, the whiskey sour of wine. Which, in a way, I kind of like the comparison of these three wines. And maybe you know, Retsina's again in the first book, and then Moscofilero in the second book, and then he makes it to Assyrtiko in the third. I don't know. I'm making that up. But well, he does eventually become the Archmage. Yes. Like he he's not even the main character. I think after the first book. No, he's not. He he shows up like he is a character. Yeah. But um, he ultimately becomes a lot more responsible and becomes the most like powerful wizard of the sure. age or whatever. Sure. Sure. And... But that's a that's a sort of little that's a nice little overview of Greek wine. 
Greek white wine for you, some of the three major grapes to look out for in that region. And so so that's the main thing that, that occurs to me. The other thing, just hearing you say wine that's good, drunk young, rosé. Rosé is meant to be drunk young. It's really not meant to age. And I'm thinking of Angela Osborne's tribute to Grace Rosé. She also makes another rosé made from Grenache uh, called Folded Hills. And both both of those, I think, are really really beautiful and um and those those would be nice to drink with this as well Well, so let's talk about the so then the heinish cycle the so the more sci-fi is by the way it's unusual that i'm the one who knows a little bit more about the sci-fi side of things and you know a little bit more about the fantasy side of things you're more of a sci-fi guy and i'm more of a fantasy girl in general but there, if we had to put ourselves into categories, which we don't. Basically, I'm an illiterate dum-dum, and I'm <laughs> excited to get some education right now. That's not, that's not true at all. But so these books, they have – so first of all, talking about Game of Thrones and the idea of different places being one entirely in winter and one entirely in summer or – and, you know, winter is coming, that whole, that whole thing. In these books, the planet – that this, it takes place on, uh, the left hand of darkness is called colloquially winter. And so hmm. it is it's sort of eternally winter there. It's very cold. Because it's just like super far from the sun or? I guess so, yeah. I mean, like, it, I mean, it's it ha- probably has its own suns. It's not it's one a, of those non-rotating deals, right? I don't think where so. Where like half the planet is dark. and ha- I don't think so. I think So, so I, it's just like it's way just, out there. It's way out there. Different, different galaxy, different... Um, right, right. I, th- I think. But anyway, but so there's this and, – and more than it being cold, there's a starkness to the book, which is beautiful. And – Like only survival matters? Is that the kind of thing? No, I mean they have, like, a, they have a society. Like, like they have a culture, They right, have a culture. But... There, There's a king and there's a, there's a government. There's a whole system. And the it, – it, it, Like what's stark about it though? The landscape. Oh, okay. And also, and and just the 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 way it's written, the way the culture seems to to work, you know, They're it's laconic. A little bit, a little bit laconic. And so I'm trying to think something. Which shout out to Dan Carlin. I did not know that meant Spartan until very recently. Ah. Oh. That's what it means because the Spartans are the Lacedaemonians, and oh. so laconic means like a Spartan, and the Spartans were reputed to. Never say more than they had to. I feel like so, I learned that recently, but but that might be you telling me. Probably I was like stoned <laughs> and I was like, listen, man, <laughs> laconic means just like now. <laughs> just like now. <laughs> just like now. Well, again, talking about talking about Spartans, now I'm back to Greece again. God damn it. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, just... <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> No, it's fine. No, I'm I'm trying to think and and honestly, like this wine that we're drinking tonight feels very right to me. It's very smooth, it's very drinkable, but it's got this little bit of grip to it, this little bit of grittiness yeah. to it. And well, excuse me for being like colonialist, but I really do taste a lot of spice in it. Mm-hmm. And given that How does that make you colonialist? Well, I mean, you know, given that like a bunch <laughs> of white people in wigs built some boats and we're like, well, we're going to kill most of you, take all your money and uh, trade in spices that you have. And people were like, 
hey, it's nice to meet you. And they were like, nope, you're enslaved now. We do. If that, like, if that's the case, then, you know, the, the entire wine culture is colonialist because we talk about spice flavor in wine all the time. Oh, sure. Which, well, you know, can't say that's not true. When also there was a legit spice trade, like on the Silk Road and stuff. I mean, there was an overland trade in spices dating back uh, all the way to the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty in China. I mean, there was actual trade going on. But once we got to the colonial age, you know, things like coffee and spice and pepper and all that stuff, they took on a different meaning because we were toppling whole governments. But so I like Syrah actually does feel like a really great grape for the left hand of darkness because it's not a beautiful world. There's a little bit of harshness to it. And it's or it, it's not not a beautiful word. It's not like. It's not like, this is a terrible place and things are terrible here. It's just, it's not by any sense what we're comfortable with. And Which I think is is really cool. And it's it's nice that it's coming back now. Like I think Joe Abercrombie mm-hmm. and even George R. R. Martin to an extent are bringing back that kind of dark fantasy trend. Mm-hmm. But I think right at the time that Ursula K. Le Guin was writing and Zelazny and a few other people, there was this divergence in the market, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're talking about the market for fantasy books, but it's still a market. Mm-hmm. And the preference was just like high fantasy, like yeah. give me orcs, give me elves, give me dragons, yeah. give me whatever. What I don't want to do is deal with like the darkness of the human soul. Yeah. And so a lot of people kind of got shunted. And the complexity into... of the human soul also. Yeah. Like, you know, again, much as I love Tolkien, it's very much good versus evil. There's not a lot of moral gray area in Tolkien. Which, again, when you're in the trenches, I understand you feeling like that. Sure, sure. I mean, for any number of reasons, he could have chosen that And writing during World War Two, Absolutely. Fine. Or the build-up to it. Sure. But, again... Ursula Le Guin is not really interested in good versus evil. She's mm-hmm. interested in both and the balance. And that, I think, is so cool and so interesting. Yeah. And responsibility, too. A lot of the stuff she writes, or at least, you know, in the Ursi, it's just like, uh, well, man, you made a stupid decision and it got a bunch of people killed. So good luck living with that forever. Well, <laughs> but know? Yeah, but it, but it is also saying, you know, you can live with that yes, forever. Yes, yes. And, and actually, you, that's And you true. will learn to live with that forever. Yeah. Because that's, that's, very, that's a very hard thing to grapple with as a perfectionist, as I am. When I make mistakes, as you can attest to, I don't handle it very well. And so the more I have people, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the more I have people telling me that it's okay and in fact good to make mistakes and learning how to deal with that is an inherent part of living. If if we're perfect then we're boring is the thing I learn right. more and more as I get older. Untroubled water, you know, it's perfect. So it's so that's to... so that's what I'm what I'm thinking. So anyway, so the so we're would you like me to pour some more I would wine I would because I, I I we risk catastrophe <laughs> yeah. if I do. That was about to go very badly. <laughs> I, yep. I am now pouring I have I have a dragon aerator and so I've got the dragon aerator in A dragon is puking wine into my glass right now. Yeah. Again, 
give me the world in which there are dragons. I don't care what I have to do to get that. But Although one thing I do have to say, I really like that Ursula K. Le Guin and Terry Goodkind stole this later for all of one book before he discarded I really don't like him, by the way. Anyway, In case you haven't noticed, Winston doesn't like Terry Goodkind. <clears throat> but anyway, he... He stole this idea of, like, dragons being witty and, like, cynical and smart. And I guess she maybe she was influenced well, by Smaug. Yeah, you know. I mean, Tolkien definitely dealt with sort of witty, evil dragons. But even Smaug was, like, imperious. And when Gen confronts the dragon in Wizard of Ursae, the dragon is, like, hustling him. Mm-hmm. And he out-hustles the hustler. Yeah. Like, dragons are hustlers, and it's like, oh, you can't, dragons will lie to you. Like, dragons are very smart, and they know things, and they have magic, but dragons never tell the truth, you know? And it was like, dragons as, like, these witty, kind of cynical, worldly creatures. I always thought that was really cool. Totally. Totally. I'll have to think about. Please uh, hit us up. If you can think of awesome fantasy th- series where people ride dragons or dragons are characters, I just might have to do a whole dragons episode. Oh my god, that'd be amazing. Oh my god, we might have to do a dragon episode. All right. So, this has been our tribute to Ursula K. Le Guin. Wherever she is now, be that nowhere or be it everywhere. I hope that she feels happy with the work she's done because she's certainly changed the life, the lives of many, many people with her with her art. And uh, that's really all you can ask. And so I, I you know, it, it felt only right to me to, 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 to honor her in this way. Yeah. Rest in the earth and enjoy being made of stardust, Ursula. Thank you so much. was created and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. I am your host, Emma Sherjarko, and tonight I was joined by Winston Shaw. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please visit our blog on our website at thepairingpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, cheers. Cheers.